Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we'll deal with the last four verses there that provide a conclusion to the chapter in the book so far, an intermediate conclusion, and introduce us to the tenth chapter. Romans chapter 9, I read at verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness. Even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Our beloved brother Paul goes on to say in the first verse of the next chapter, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And he will describe what salvation that is in the verses that follow. But with that verse, coupled with the first verse of this ninth chapter, or the first five verses of the ninth chapter, we see that the apostle has a great ambition, love and desire for his countrymen. And I'm going to show you today, and I'll be continuing to show you, and I hope that it's obvious to you already, that these are only his elect countrymen that he is so concerned about. Because he has just spent, in particular, verses 6 through 24, and those quotations that we covered last Lord's Day in verses 25 through 29, proving that there was reprobation and election within the nation of Israel, which altered a view of the whole nation being saved, and only the elect, only of the Jews, and only of the Gentiles were truly to be saved. We have had read to us already this morning, Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 48, which show us there a difference between the Gentiles and the Jews. We have had read to us the history of Abraham in brief, six passages of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, Genesis 22, 1 through 14, Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 15, and James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Those passages show us the life of Abraham, and I hope you found some of them interesting. You usually turn to Joshua 24 for the 15th verse, where it says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But there were four references there to some fathers that were on the other side of the flood. And if you read the Bible too simplistically, you'll think that that has something to do with Noah. But Abraham lived a long time after Noah. Abraham was never near the flood that covered the earth in Noah's day. The flood that is referenced there as your brother Adam told you before he read is referring to the Euphrates River by way of its eminence as a great river. 
in the area of the world where the Garden of Eden was formed and the people of God settled. But on the other side of that flood, Abraham and his brother and his father worshipped other gods. It tells us that. And the Lord called him. And praise be to that fact. Amen. Praise be to the fact that God would call a man who's worshipping another god and raise him up and send him forth into the land of Canaan and then all the dealings that he had with him. And he walked with God and he built altars and the Lord appeared to him in visions and he worshipped the Lord and his worship was accepted and God blessed everything he did and God delivered him from enemies and was able to take on confederations of kings and defeat them with trained servants. And the Lord was with Abraham and all that he did. And then in chapter 15 of Genesis, which Paul quotes in Galatians and in Romans chapter 3 and 4, Abraham believed God's promise about his numerous seed, and it was counted to him for righteousness. We believe and understand, and I've preached it to you for hours before, as Brother Jonathan mentioned to you before his reading, that Abraham's standing before God didn't change a whit in Genesis chapter 15. It was just the evidence that he was a righteous man by having such great confidence in God's promise. He staggered not at the promise of God in unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God that what he had promised he was able also to perform, even though both he and Sarah were past the biological time to conceive children. Then in Genesis chapter 22, we saw that Abraham, in answer to God's tempting commandment, took his son Isaac up into Mount Moriah to offer him as a burnt sacrifice, and he raised his hand to slay his son. In Hebrews 11, which Orville read to us, tells us that he would have slain his son because he believed that God would raise him from the dead. And then the angel of the Lord calls unto Abraham from heaven and says, Now I know that thou fearest me. Now, wait a minute. I thought his justification, righteousness, and the character of his soul had been proven in chapter 15 when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But now the angel is saying, Now I know. Because it's easy to believe something, but it's a whole lot harder to obey it. And so we concluded with James chapter 2 where it says that a man is not justified by faith only, but by works. And Abraham was justified by works because Genesis 22 and his attempted offering of Isaac fulfilled Genesis chapter 15 and his belief that God would keep his promise about a numerous seed. All of that is to say... That God justifies only the elect. And that is the eternal phase of salvation. And God justifies only the elect by only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is the legal phase. And only the regenerate will ever believe either of those two phases. And that's the third phase, which is called the vital phase in our understanding of what the Bible teaches. And then the gospel comes to men, and it shows them how God saved them, that He chose them before the world began, that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for them, and that the Holy Spirit regenerates them from the lost condition that we have by nature in Adam, and they believe it. And that belief does not change their standing before God because they were ordained to eternal life before the world began. They were predestinated to adoption before the world began. 
their destiny had been determined beforehand to have an eternal inheritance. That's Ephesians 1 and about verse 11. And then, of course, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes the second time, He'll receive us into heaven and we'll be glorified together with Him forever. These things we believe as certain and true. And so when we come to a passage like Romans 9, 30 through 33, where the apostle uses language to confound the Jewish confidence in the law and explain faith as being antithetical to the law, he is not teaching what is going forth from so many pulpits today, and that is the elect are made by their faith, and the elect are justified by their faith, because God has tried and Christ has died to justify them all, and it's all up to them. We don't believe that a bit, because we can't find that in the Bible. It's absurd. And that's been proven many times in many ways on other occasions. Remember with me the overall theme of these three chapters that we have before us, Romans 9, 10, and 11. They are pertaining to the nation of Israel. Paul begins in chapter 9 with a very clear distinction from chapter 8 that he is talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. Then in chapter 10 and verse 1, which I've just read to you, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. And then chapter 11 and verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite. These three chapters are about Israel. When we get to chapter 12, it's going to be back to our practical duties before God to work out the grace and mercy that he's worked in us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we come to the ninth chapter as one of these three chapters, and we come to the last four verses. Now remember with me Romans 9. The first five verses are a gentle introduction by the apostle to smooth the way of dropping a bomb on his Jewish hearers that they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And that's his declaration in verse 6 that teaches that God has reprobated some of the nation of Israel meaning he has rejected them and he has elected a portion of them to be his children. And verse 8 tells us that the subject under consideration is not merely national and the privileges of being the people of God from a national standpoint, but it's referring to the children of God. Remember it with me. Verse 8, that is. When the Holy Spirit inspires the words, that is, you can count on the fact that you are about to get a definition or an explanation, and I'm thankful for the that is of the Bible. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And so we want to know what's under consideration here. So in verses 1 through 5, Paul introduces the doctrine. In verse 6, Paul declares the doctrine. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel, meaning that there is reprobation and election within the nation of Israel. In verses 7 through 13, he illustrates this doctrine, this hard doctrine, from the patriarch's families, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he proves it in verses 14 through 24 by theology, that the nature of God revealed in Scripture is that he is the dispenser of mercy and compassion without regard to the will or efforts of men. 
So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. He's able to conclude in verse 16. He explains that in the case of Pharaoh, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so in verse 18, we have another summary lesson. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. And then it goes on to say that what if God, as the potter, who's able to take from the same clay, the lump of clay of humanity, and make some vessels to honor and some to dishonor, we are having the the doctrine of election taught to us in clearer terms and stronger terms than anywhere else in the Bible in one place. He then concludes, what if God, willing to show his wrath, has vessels of dishonor, which are also called vessels of wrath, because he's going to pour out his wrath on them. That's verse 22. And he has afore prepared vessels of mercy unto glory, because he's going to show his glory to them throughout eternity, because they'll be with him in heaven. And then in verse 24, he concludes by summarizing and saying, even us, the audience in Rome to whom he was writing, and he himself were that were those vessels of mercy. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, showing that it is an election within Israel of only some of the Jews, but of the Gentiles also. It's also a part of the Gentiles. And brethren, we should be very thankful for that little Gentile clause there. Then the apostle takes up some passages of Scripture that we covered last Lord's Day in Romans 9, 25-29 which prove from the Scriptures the doctrine that this reprobation or rejection of some Israelites and election or choice of other Israelites had occurred in the Old Testament and was plainly taught in their Bibles. Now the Apostle is going to explain what he has been dealing with actually from the first chapter on where he mentioned Gentiles in the first chapter a couple of different times And he mentions Gentiles in chapter 3, and he mentions them in chapter 4. He's going to point out their response to the gospel is drastically different. And why is it different? What is the problem going on with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why have the Gentiles believed it and have attained to the righteousness which comes by faith, and that is the practical phase of righteousness whereby we prove that we are God's justified elect by believing on Jesus Christ And the Jews, as a class, don't believe what's happened. So we're going to get that right now. Then chapter 10, we'll deal with it more thoroughly. And chapter 11, we'll deal with an exceptional part of that blindness toward the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to remember, so that you don't get waylaid by some who would say that this is the first mention of the Gentiles because it's not at all. The Gentiles have been understood from the very beginning. Do you, do you remember why? And it's been two years as a kind brother was reminded us this morning. Do you remember why the Romans wanted to have Paul visit them and why Paul wanted to visit them? So that he could have some fruit among them as he had had among other Gentiles. It tells us that in the first chapter, before we can get past the full introduction and salutation and preface of that passage. And he said, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. I am debtor both to the Greek and to the barbarian. 
the, for the, the preaching of the cross is to them that per, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's been mentioning that from chapter 1. And so his conclusion now, what shall we say then? I have just declared the doctrine of election among the nation of Israel. I explained justification and righteousness by faith in chapters 3 and 4. I've already told you that is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. I've already explained that the Gentiles act more like Abraham than the Jews do. I've also explained that Abraham was justified and declared righteous by God in chapter 15 of Genesis, two chapters before he was circumcised. And he explains, Shall not the uncircumcision, if they keep the righteousness of the law, condemn you Jews who preach and read and kiss the law every Sabbath day, but you don't keep it? And all that that we've already covered, I hope you remember all that. Because when he says the words, What shall we say then? He's not drawing a conclusion from the previous five verses. He's not even drawing a conclusion from the first, from the previous 29 verses. He's drawing a conclusion to date of what he has said about Jews and Gentiles, having just explained in detail a very important point. There is an election in Israel. And having stated that, he then is going to take up why do they respond differently to the gospel. And chapter 10 is going to be all about the gospel response. And chapter 11 is going to be to a large part about the gospel response of Jews and Gentiles. And so here we are. And I hope that the review and the introduction is helpful to you. I do not like just diving in and pulling out a verse and trying to tell you the sense of it unless we get the flow of the epistle and what the apostle has already said. Because you shouldn't be reading Romans 9, 30 through 33 without having read the first eight and a half chapters to get to this verse. Because getting to this verse, you would have already covered righteousness, which is of faith. Justification by faith. You would have already seen the distinction between being justified freely by His redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 324. You would have already found out that as by one man's obedience, many were made righteous in Romans chapter 5. You'd already have all that settled so you wouldn't get confused by diving in right here and not knowing those things. Oh, that's a long introduction. Here we go. Romans 9.30. What shall we say then? Paul's going to bring an intermediate conclusion here about what he's taught so far. These are words that he likes. He likes to have intermediate conclusions. There are a number of times in Romans, chapter 4, 6, and 7, what shall we say then? These identical words. Because he loves to bring everything to a conclusion. Where do we stand right now with all that I've taught you in this epistle? What shall we say then? And here's what he's going to say. He's not asking a question for the Romans to help him understand what's going on. When he says, what shall we say then? He's just being nice by including them in the rhetorical presentation of the truth. Please. There's no question at all. Because what he's about to say is not a question. It's not a wonder. It's a declaration. What shall we say then? Based on eight and a half chapters. That the Gentiles, 
which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. The Gentiles, whom I have just told you in verse 24 of this chapter, were elect of God by that great divine potter that took of the lump of humanity and made some Gentiles vessels of mercy for eternal glory. Those Gentiles that were never seeking after righteousness, they didn't care about the holy God of heaven. They weren't trying to be established before Him in an acceptable way. They believed the gospel, and by believing the gospel and having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, show themselves to be God's justified elect. What shall we say then? We've got this situation on our hands where we have Gentiles elected by God who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and show themselves to be just and righteous, which is the justification by faith. Oh, brethren, which followed not after righteousness. You know, there are, there are people who like to trace their roots. And they want to get the name of their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather somewhere. But who cares about their name? You know, what did our ancestors do in the way of religion? I had to write a man in the last 48 hours who, who was offended by a recent Proverbs commentary where I said that training our youth the way that we are in this country is the certain ruin of the nation. And it's contrary to what the Bible teaches in Proverbs 23 and verse 13 about withholding not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. And I mentioned that, you know, our, our approach today is to let them do whatever they want and to send them off to the public zoo and give them a daily dose of African sex music, MTV, and let them tweet each other and text each other well, I was called into question about that. And what in the world is this African sex music? Well, if you don't know the origin of rock and roll, you ought to find out where rock and roll came from. It came from the dark continent, and it came through the slaves that were brought over here in the southern United States, and it came through the honky-tonks of New Orleans right alongside voodoo, witch doctors, and witchcraft. And out of those honky-tonks came that heavy beat music with the constant backbeat because it was made for fornication. Every house of fornication in the world either has rock and roll, that's 95% of some sort, or other techno music that the Europeans have invented. Furthermore, the, the term rock and roll is an African-American term for sexual intercourse. That's where it originated, and Alan, Alan Freed, a disc jockey in Cleveland in 1951, applied it to this music that was called by white people back then, black music, called it rock and roll, and it's been rock and roll ever since. Well, what's all that got to do with Romans 9.30? I'll tell you what it's got to do with Romans 9.30. I wrote and told him, my ancestors worshipped at Stonehenge, and they worshipped the devil. And I'm not offended when anyone says to me, that there's European sex music or that there's European hypnotic music or that there's European devil worship. 
because I know where my ancestors came from. And I'm not really ashamed of it, except I'm ashamed of all devil worshipers on earth and those who will, who will not give God the glory. But it's just a fact. And why should I argue or be offended with a fact? It's by the grace of God that the gospel was carried from the Apostle Paul to the British Isles. And our parents, if you're from the British Isles or anywhere in Europe, heard the gospel. Amen. But if it hadn't been for God's electing grace... The Gentiles would have never believed that gospel. They would have stoned and killed, or killed by any other means, every minister of the gospel that brought it to them. And so when we look at this verse right here, the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness. Our ancestors did not follow after righteousness. But now we need at all, and we could go on and on about what our ancestors did do. And they were ignorant and they were blind. All you've got to do is read the history of the Bible about what those people outside of the commonwealth of Israel were doing in the way of religion. They were offering their children in sacrifice to stone idols. Now that is pretty sick and that is pretty low and that's pretty blind and pretty terrible. It's horrible. These Gentiles, that the Gentiles... Now he's using the word Gentiles as a class of the human race. And in this particular place, there's only two classes of the human race. There's Jews and there's non-Jews. And the term he uses for non-Jews is Gentiles. But now he's using a term for a class of the human race, but the emphasis is only on the elect in that part of the human race. Because it says that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. So this group called Gentiles, he's not referring to all of them. He's referring to the very small subset of the Gentiles that believe the gospel because faith is mentioned and having attained righteousness is mentioned. And so it tells us he is still following the same line of reasoning from the 24th verse where he said, but of the Gentiles also. But of the Gentiles, meaning of the Gentiles, only part of them. And so this is very important for us to understand as we look at that 30th verse. What shall we say then? What conclusion can we make about what's been presented so far? That the Gentiles, that I have had great fruit among, chapter 1, that I want to preach the gospel to because some of them will believe it, chapter 1, that show by their lives better character than you Jews, chapter 2. For the word of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you Jews. I hope you remember these things. And chapter 3, he is the God of the Gentiles only. And chapter 4, therefore it is of grace that it might be, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace that the promise might be sure to all the seed, even to them that are not circumcised referring to Gentiles over and over again. And so there's a conclusion here. Now, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And what you're supposed to figure out, and I hope it's not too deep, they are not all Gentiles, which are of Gentiles. Okay? Because the word Gentiles is used here, but he's referring specifically only to the elect among them because he's describing them as being righteous, justified souls that believe the gospel. So he's using a class distinction, but he's using it with a sense 
that you better be careful with or we're not going to rightly divide the word of truth. It's the elect among the Gentiles. And, and so much could be said. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, that's you and me, which followed not after righteousness as a class. We never followed after righteousness. And truly, even as God's elect, before we were born again, we weren't following after righteousness either, have attained to righteousness. These Gentiles are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their lives are being changed. They're burning their books as at Ephesus. They're turning from their idols to wait for the the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul described the Thessalonians in the first chapter of the first epistle to them. And it's the righteousness which is of faith. There are, there, there are words and verses and paragraphs in Romans that sound Arminian in their construction. And I've taught this many times before. And this is one of them. The righteousness which is of faith. We do not believe that anyone gets righteous because of their faith. Because the rest of the Bible wars against that concept. And in fact, James himself would say that, can faith save him? Now that's a rhetorical question. Can you figure out the answer? No. Faith by itself isn't good enough. Faith by itself proves nothing except you're at the level of a devil. Faith without works is dead, like the body without the spirit is dead. Have you ever tried to get a body without the spirit to move? Does it function like a body? It may look good, and it may sound good. I'm referring back to faith in my little analogy here. But it can't move or function. And so we understand these things. We understand the five phases that I've already been through. Practical justification is our evidence that we're just and righteous before God by believing. That's what happened in Genesis 15 when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. What does that mean? It means that God looked at his faith in a promise that was impossible and said, that shows the righteous character of that man that he would believe something impossible. And it was counted to him for righteousness. It showed that he was a righteous man. In the New Testament, counting or accounting or imputing refers to the same event. That God looks at the act and declares that it is an evidence of the man's character. He's a righteous man. We don't believe that he changed at all before God. And there are so many that love that description, that testimony of Abraham in Romans 3 and 4 and Galatians 3. And they get confused. Abraham didn't change in Genesis 15. Abraham was already obeying God. Abraham was doing things by faith, according to Hebrews 11, when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. Why did he leave that city? To travel north to Haran, cross the Euphrates River, and come on into Canaan. Why did he do He did it by faith. He built altars to God and worshipped God. God appeared to him in visions. He walked with God before Genesis 15. There was a signal event, a watershed event. A, a, a very important event in Genesis 15... And it is recorded for us so that the Apostle Paul could make use of it for a generation of Jews or descendants of Abraham that were coming later. And there's two things important, and I hope this is meaningful to you, why Genesis 15 
And that event there has so much stress laid on it in the New Testament. One reason I've mentioned already, because it comes two chapters before circumcision. Abraham is circumcised and circumcises his household in chapter 17. Well, the Jews were in love with circumcision. Didn't Romans chapter 3 start out this way? What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Because they were all hung up on circumcision. Was there a great church council in Acts chapter 15 to deal with the issue? Do Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved? Did Paul have to write the epistle to the churches of Galatia to deal with that same issue? Well, the reason we have that event in Genesis 15 is God counted Abraham a righteous man two chapters before he was circumcised. Oh, that was hard for a Jew to receive. And not only could Paul point out, look, Abraham was justified and declared righteous before he was circumcised, doesn't that mean that Gentiles that don't get circumcised at all, can't they be righteous before God as well when they show the faith of Abraham? Do you know how powerful all this is? You say, do you mean to tell me that the events that were recorded in Genesis were written with Romans in mind? Amen. I'm not stretching your faith, am I, with that one? That should be shrinking your faith because that is not deep at all. Second reason. And Paul makes good use of this one in Galatians. Abraham is declared righteous, and by faith he's walking with God, 12, 13, 14, 15 chapters of Genesis, 430 years before the law was given on Mount Sinai. Oh, that was an even worse blow to the Jews. That's why it's there. I want you to understand that. Don't you let someone quote Paul in Romans, or quote Paul in Galatians, or quote Genesis 15 and say, that is when Abraham went forward and got justified. All it is is taking an event in Abraham's life and identifying it so that Paul could refer to it and show the descendants of Abraham that he wasn't circumcised and he had never heard about the law of Moses. He had never seen a tabernacle, but God declared him righteous. And then James helped settle, sort things out. You know, whenever Paul, Paul, whenever he writes, has to deal with these Jewish legalists who think that keeping, why is it called legalism? When you think you have to keep the law in order to be saved. That's why they're called legalists. People call us legalists just because we're strict about some things, but we're the farthest thing from legalists that they've ever met in their lives because we don't believe there's a single thing you can do to cooperate with God in your eternal salvation. Legalism, specifically and defined correctly, is adding something to the finished work of Christ necessary in order to be saved. And the Jews added the law of Moses and they added circumcision, which was a covenant with Abraham. Both of those blown out by Paul because of what God gave us. And we're, we're very thankful to understand this distinction in these things. Brethren, when we look at Romans 9 and these four verses, we've got to remember that what we have just had laid out before us, that if you have any of God's mercy in your life, it is by His will and His will alone. That's already been given. If you have God's compassion in your life, it is by His will and His will alone. That's verse 15 of this same chapter. And all these things have been laid down to us as we have progressed toward these verses. But what shall we say then? 
Well, we have learned from the first chapter all the way through the ninth chapter to this point is that there are Gentiles, and as a class of people, they were never seeking after righteousness before God because they had no heart for God. They were the enemies of God. They made up idols to the, to their own, after their own imagination. In fact, a description of their character and their religion is found in the first chapter, verses 18 through 32. Remember? They make images of things, of men, of birds, of four-footed beasts, and of creeping things. That's what our ancestors did, because that's a description of the Gentiles by nature. They were not seeking after righteousness. But they've attained to it. What made the difference? Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. The doctrine of election taught earlier in this chapter is what made the difference in Gentile lives. God elected them out of the fallen mass of the Gentile class of humanity and made them vessels of mercy. And because He made them vessels of mercy, He sent Jesus Christ to justify them legally. And then the gospel came to them. And as we read in Acts chapter 13, the Gentiles were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. They were, they desired Paul to get together and the whole city practically came together to hear Paul preach the gospel. And how did all that happen? Because God chose some Gentiles and Christ died for them and God sent His Holy Spirit and regenerated them. They were the ordained of God. They believed. And there is this this subset of all the Gentiles, this subset of elect Gentiles that believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and could lay claim that they were righteous before God because they had the evidence of their father Abraham. They believed. But Israel, now, an important point right here, we have just had these three verses set up for us. By the 30th verse. In the 30th verse, we have a class distinction used, but the emphasis is only on the subset of the elect Gentiles. In this 31st verse, we have a class distinction given to us, but the emphasis is on the subset of elect Israel. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. The Israel here is the elect Israel. There's a class distinction, which covers all Israelites, all Jews. But the emphasis is on the subset of the very small remnant of the Jews that were elect. Now, there's a number of reasons that we could draw this conclusion. First of all, we were set up for it so that we would just fall into it naturally by understanding verse 30. Because verse 30 is not all Gentiles. Verse 30 is only elect Gentiles, or you're going to run into very serious problems. We, we understand from chapter 9 and verse 6, they are not all Israel which are of Israel, so we know we've got to divide the word of truth in some way right here because Paul has said they are not all elect. That is, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. And he has already shown us in verse 24 that there are some elect Gentiles and there are some elect Jews. When he comes to chapter 10 and verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So we've got we've got some context leading into this verse, 31, and we've got some context following it. Who was Paul praying for in Romans 10, 1? Was Paul praying for the children of the flesh that they might invite Jesus into their heart and become the children of the Spirit? Or the children of promise? Not at all. Never crossed his mind. 
You're supposed to know that from having read the rest of the Bible and having read Romans to this point. Beginning at chapter 8 and verse 28, it describes those who love God as those who were called according to His purpose. It describes them as having been foreknown and predestinated before the foundation of the world. It describes them as being God's elect and who can lay anything to their charge. If we assume that we're talking about national Israel in chapter 10 and verse 1, then we have Paul praying against God, against God and what God has done that Paul has taught in chapter 9. All of that is an impossibility. This is a class distinction, but he has elect Israel in mind. And that is the Israel that he had continual sorrow and grief in his heart for, and that his prayer to God for was that they would be saved, and the salvation he has in mind is not that they would be elected or that would be justified or would be regenerated, but that they would be converted to believe the gospel and be saved from going about to establish their own righteousness by the works of the law rather than the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he describes there in the first five verses of the tenth chapter. We must rightly divide the word of truth or we're going to end up in confusion. We will have Paul praying and laboring to save those that he says are impossible to save. We will have Paul trying to make vessels of mercy out of vessels of wrath. We will have Paul pushing the potter off his seat and saying, Give me that clay that you've made in a vessel of dishonor, and I'll make something honorable out of it. We don't have that at all. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness. Now as a class of people, the whole nation did, but the elect did as well, didn't they? The elect went to the temple. They went to the synagogues every Sabbath day. They brought their animal sacrifices, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Does that mean there's no Jews that attain to the law of righteousness? No. Paul is going to tell you in chapter 11 and the first couple of verses, Remember, I am an Israelite. I am a descendant of Abraham. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. There are some. But there's a problem. Israel has a problem with the Lord Jesus Christ. Elect Israel has a problem with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's a stumbling stone set up for the whole class and for some of the elect until they're converted. Was the Lord Jesus Christ a stumbling stone for the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus? An enormous stumbling stone. Do you know what he told Agrippa? I thought within myself, O King Agrippa, that I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because to a Jew, this Jesus of Nazareth was a devil-possessed heretic that was an enemy of God, and his poor, pitiful life, ending up crucified on the cross, showed that God was judging him, and he spoke against the temple, and against the priests, and against the Pharisees. And they thought they ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. I was talking to a brother this morning. When Philip went to Nathaniel, Nathaniel was a good elect Israelite wasn't he? I have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Remember how they spoke and how they thought. 
But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained the law of righteousness. There's no way to be justified by the law of righteousness, so they have not reached the goal that they've sought after because it's impossible to reach it because as the fifth verse in the next chapter tells us, Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them, and there's no man that could keep all the 718 commandments of the law of Moses. So they did not attain to it. Wherefore, verse 32, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, the Jews were so superstitious about their law that they thought that had to be the only way that you could get saved was to keep the law of Moses, to be circumcised like our father Abraham was circumcised. Superstition about their ceremonial religion. Even though John the Baptist had appeared on the scene, And even though the prophets of God had said a new messenger was coming with a different gospel that was going to proclaim liberty to the captives, they didn't hear it. They didn't hear the Lord Jesus Christ with all of His miracle power. They did not believe the apostles with all their miracle power. Don't you think with the man lame from birth in the gate beautiful of the temple, dancing and jumping around, that some of those Pharisees and priests would have been converted? Some were. But why weren't more converted? For this reason right here. Wherefore? Why weren't more converted? And we're not talking, we're using the class distinction, but we're talking about the elect Israel. Why weren't more converted? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. They were still hung up about the law of Moses, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, And he quotes from two places in Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There's the two passages. First of all, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. Now notice in the second clause it says, And whosoever believeth on him. So we know that this stone of stumbling and this rock of offense is is represented by a male pronoun in the next clause. And who is this? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was offensive to the Jews. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the Jews require a sign. Can you believe that the Pharisees and the elders of the Jews came to Jesus and said, show us a sign that you're the Son of God? What had He done to that point? Only 14,929 miracles, including raising the dead. Show us a sign. And he said, I'll give you one. And did this sign irritate them? Did this sign offend them? Did this sign eventually end up condemning him in court? Because he worded it a couple different ways. I'll be three days and three nights in the ground, and I will come out of the ground like Jonas came out of the belly of the whale. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up again. This temple was 46 years in the building. And you're going to raise it up again in three days? See, they were offended at him. You say, well, why didn't he use plainer language? Why didn't he use plainer language? Right here. Because God determined to lay in Zion a stumbling stone. That nation had rejected his goodness, his long-suffering, his kindness, his mercy for generations And so that huge class 
had shrunk down to a very small element of God's elect among them, and even within them, there were some at this point unconverted that Paul knew he could convert if God would bless his efforts. And we're going to have this explained to us over these next two chapters, that there's a mystery here that we needed to understand about Israel. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. Let's read Peter's version of the same thing. You know, it's, it's interesting. First Peter chapter 2. Peter helped us out last Lord's Day because Peter in First Peter chapter 2 used the same quotations from Hosea that Paul used there earlier in verses 25 through 29 of Romans, the ninth chapter. First Peter chapter 2. Now remember to whom Peter writes this epistle. The first verse of the first chapter said, to the strangers scattered throughout, and then lists some Roman provinces. The strangers. Why were they strangers? If they were Gentiles that had been born and raised there, how were they strangers? This is the diaspora. These are the scattered Jews that had been carried there and scattered by Assyria and by Babylon. And so we know he's writing to Jews because he tells them over here in verse 12, 1 Peter 2.12, he tells them to have their conversation honest among the Gentiles. But let's go, let's go to verse 2, 4. Verse 4, 1 Peter 2.4. To whom coming? This is the Lord Jesus Christ who's just been mentioned in verse 3. To whom coming as unto a living stone. Now notice the play on the word stone. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, this is from Psalm 118 and verse 22, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. This is the New Testament church. This is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, behold, this is another bomb that Paul dropped on the Jews in Romans 9. And Peter is dropping right here, Behold, that was given by prophecy in the book of Isaiah, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. As we're reading in Romans 9, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. God raised up the Lord Jesus Christ, and made him in such a way that he was offensive to the Jews. He was offensive to the Gentiles as well. There was no greater response for the Lord Jesus Christ when Paul preached him on Mars Hill to the Athenian philosophers than there was when he preached him in Jerusalem or Damascus to the Jews. They both rejected him. The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Now for the whole class of Israel, they'd been appointed to stumble over the Lord Jesus Christ. But there didn't have to be much work done for them. They weren't elect, and they weren't regenerate. 
But there were others that were appointed to this stump, to stumble over this stumbling stone because God was withholding full gospel mercy to the elect among Israel for the sake of the Gentiles. Notice what happened when I read in Acts 13 to you earlier today. What got Paul to preach to the Gentiles? The hatred toward the gospel by the Jews. They were blaspheming and contradicting everything he said. And they would have known the Old Testament scriptures to try to do so better than any Gentile could have done. And so he said, Lo, I'm sick of preaching to you Jews. It should have gone to you first, but I turned to the Gentiles. And you know what? My commission on the road to Damascus was for the Gentiles anyway. And you know, the Gentiles were glad when they heard this and glorified the word of the Lord. Jesus Christ did not come. What Isaiah 53 tells us, there was nothing comely about him. Nothing to be desired in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he is such a sword in families and such a divider. Because only a few will believe on him for the testimony that God gave of his son. Because outside of that, there was nothing to commend him. From Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, the Jews reasoned once in Matthew chapter 13. We esteemed him smitten and stricken of God. Isaiah 53. It appeared that God was against him by the life that he lived. A life of poverty, a life of grief, and a man of sorrows. But unto you which believe, unto you which believe he is precious. And those that stumble over it were appointed to that. God's just left them there. He hasn't opened their heart like he opened the heart of Lydia to love everything Paul had to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. What makes that huge difference? Because God elects. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 8. Among the Gentiles and among the Jews. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, they did believe. But Israel, which should have believed, kept right on trying to establish their righteousness with the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone that God had raised up in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was too much for them to believe on. They should have, but they didn't. And the reason the Lord Jesus Christ was made the way He was, and the reason the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ should just be Christ and Him crucified, is because that will distinguish who are the elect of God and who are not, and who are appointed to be blind for a season, if it be a season, and those who have had their hearts opened. Because if you read Acts chapter 16, as soon as it says the Lord opened the heart of Lydia, that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul, so different from the Jews. And as soon as she heard the gospel, she was baptized with her whole household. And then she besought Paul and Silas and Luke and said, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. How did all that happen on one day? Because the Lord made that huge difference in their lives. And we've just, we have it described to us right here. This huge difference made in the lives of men. From the whole class of Gentiles down to the very small elect remnant. We are Gentiles that have obtained, attained the righteousness which is of faith. We believe the record that God has given of His Son Jesus Christ. And we show that we've been ordained to eternal life. But Israel that Paul was concerned about, elect Israel, some of which had believed he was one of them. Thousands had believed at the day of Pentecost. Thousands more the next day. 
Some of them stumbled over that stumbling stone, and it was that Israel that Paul prayed for, commencing in chapter 10 in the next verse. He confessed and professed that they had a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, because they were ignorant about Jesus Christ and were slow and stubborn and and stumbled over him. They didn't see that he was the fulfillment of the law and that they could end, they could end trying to establish their own righteousness by the works of the law if they would believe on Christ. Because verse 4 of chapter 10 tells us, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. But those Jews just kept on, and Paul had been keeping on, until the Lord got a hold of him on the road to Damascus. And when Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, he's praying that there will be other Damascus road experiences for some of his countrymen who were elect, but were still superstitious and obsessed with the law of Moses. May the Lord bless us to understand these four verses as they lead into chapter 10, and as we take up with Paul's desire for his countrymen, who were not only countrymen by nature, but they were his brethren in the election of God, but they had not believed the gospel, and they were slow to do it because of ignorance. Let us be thankful that our fathers were not Abraham, that our fathers were not Isaac and Jacob, our fathers were not Joshua, our fathers were pagans in this world, but God chose us out of them. And he's made vessels of mercy out of even Gentiles, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles, and we prove it by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. To us, he is precious, and we believe on him. And we're looking forward to the day when He appears, when we shall adore Him and admire Him in that day. May the Lord bless us to keep that constantly before our eyes. And we should be bound to give thanks always because God made this choice of us that we would be in this class of Gentiles, though very, very small, that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are declared righteous the same way that God declared Abraham to be righteous by the evidence of their faith. Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Make it even greater. And let us add to our faith works that we shall never fall and that we shall be abundantly fruitful in our faith by having added to it the things that you expect and ask of us. Hear us, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.